Welcome to the Fly Crate Podcast, brought to you by the Fly Crate, the easiest way to discover new trout flies. To learn more about their monthly fly club and online shop, visit www.theflycrate.com. We have a great show for you this week. We've got some really great questions sent in to us um, from our wonderful fans and followers. So we're going to go through a few of these today, and then at the end we're going to announce the winner, the third place prize winner uh, of our contest. And if you don't know what the contest is, check out Twig and Timber Archery and Outdoors on YouTube and check out the free and easy way to win flies and gear for fly fishing. Uh, it's Really cool contest and some really cool stuff there. And for those of you who came from the video, I appreciate you taking the time to come on out and to come over to the podcast and check it out. So we're going to go through a few of these questions. Uh, we're going to try and stick to a few topics related to the uh, question that won our third place prize. So let's get started. Uh, Joey LaSalle asks, what's your favorite fish to catch on the fly? Uh, personally, I have two. I really love catching steelhead. One reason I love steelhead fishing on the fly is because, well, it's a great fish, game fish, tough to catch, tough to find, and um, it's just another added difficulty and challenge whenever you're using it with the fly rod. Uh, I especially love the colors, and I really enjoy being out and braving the weather to catch basically one of my favorite tough butch of a fish. My other is smallmouth bass. Ironically enough, I do love catching tons of trout, but smallmouth, uh, you can catch them anywhere. In urban settings, you know, in the middle of a city, in uh, some tailwaters, in some other really good fisheries that hold warm water fish. Uh, it's a great, fairly recently developed new uh, game fish, if you will, compared to, you know, some of the other uh, salmonids and stuff. So um, I do enjoy smallmouth bass, and they're a hardy fish, and you can find them just about anywhere. So in largemouth as well, but smallmouth, I, I enjoy fishing currents. So thank you, Joey. All right. Todd Living Liveringhouse. Pardon me for butchering your guys' names. I'm reading this right off of the feed. I would like to use a bee for a topwater fly. Who makes the best one out there? i got to tell you that I use a bee once in a while, uh, more so for fun. Um, it's, I consider bees terrestrials in the fact that they are, uh, you know, usually come from the land. They're not uh, waterborne. And so it's more of a novelty for me. They're a fun panfish fly. But to, make, to, to say who makes the best one out there, there are tons of people who are proficient in making these flies. So my suggestion would be to buy a bunch from a bunch of different places. You might want to check out the fly crate and see if they uh, can point you to somebody or one of their retailers. Um, or maybe even look up uh, some ways to creatively make a fly that to look like a bee yourself. All right, moving on. Uh, Hadassah Harshbarger. I love fly fishing so much, but my hubby says I can't fly fish in the lake. I don't have access to many rivers or streams. Can I fly fish in the lake? Absolutely. For sure. Um, still water fishing is an absolute uh, gem and, and great time. Um, I would suggest you might need to use slightly different gear. So if you're going to fish in still water or in a lake or a pond, that's still water, um, you might want to consider... Perhaps if you're using a fly rod and you're fishing for bass, I would suggest probably, well, first of all, you have to know how deep the water is. So if you're going to fish, uh, you know, three to two to four foot of water, you're probably going to want an intermediate line. Um, anything deeper than that, you're definitely going to want a full sink line and maybe even sink tips, depending on how fast you want your 
you know your flies to get down there. Um, I will give you a warning though. Uh, casting full sink lines uh, are not that fun. They have a lead core in them, so it's kind of like fishing lead shot. Not quite the same, but it's definitely not as fun as fishing a floating line. But in the right water conditioning, you know, or the water correct water conditions rather, you definitely can fish a uh, top water. Uh, popper or topwater terrestrials for trout and for bass. So, unfortunately, I never want to, you know, put you against your husband, but to be honest with you, yes, you absolutely can fish in a lake. Is it the most effective? Well, it'll depend on the, the angler, but, you know, if it's really, really deep, I usually tend to tell people that um, if, you're, if, you're, if you have to fish in 25 foot of water, you might want to consider spinning gear. All right. Uh, Marco Vasiljevic, uh, how do you access water when fly fishing without being seen by the fish? This is a great question. Uh, I fish small waters, skinny water, uh, small creeks, micro creeks, whatever you want to call them, super frequently. And the best way to do that is you have to think about it like you're hunting, okay? Fish, trout specifically, have a very specific sight window. And most of their predators are aviary, okay? Um, so they are of avian variety. They are birds, so they have to look up. So if you're able to get yourself to fish from a kneeling, a double kneel, like so two on both knees, um, or a crawling position, that's going to be the most beneficial to you. And if you can't, um, that's okay. Just remember this, that if you're fishing small water, get down as low as you can, creep up to the side, probably cast you know, you want to be downstream of the fish, meaning the fish is going to be ahead of you, and you're going to try and put your fly above the fish, a couple inches, you know, or a couple feet rather, depending on how uh, shallow or deep the water is, and you're going to try and fish them from downstream. Those two basic techniques of so staying low and fishing from from downstream, so it's fishing upstream towards the fish, probably the two best bits of advice. And there's probably no scientific evidence behind the next bit here, but Many competitive anglers will fish using muted uh, clothing, meaning olive drab, uh, kind of beigey tans, and not using bright colors, and they do very well in catching numbers of fish. Now, there's no scientific data to say that that's the reason, or it's just a factor, or it doesn't affect it at all, but if we base our opinions and our, and our knowledge on success in the field, um, competitive anglers, fly anglers, uh, typically wear the same types of clothing, and they find great success. So it may be worth a shot. All right. Um, when did you start fly fishing and tying? Well, very long time ago. That was from Outdoorsman29. Very long time ago, um, I received a very beautiful bamboo nine-foot salmon rod from my grandfather. Um, and shortly after that, I started tying, and uh, I started tying mostly bass stuff because I didn't really get into trout that much uh, early on. I was a bass guy um, because most young guns uh, like to be successful and I didn't want to have to spend the time to analyze and, and you know dissect trout water. That being said, it didn't take that long to get accustomed to the gear and the, and the tactics and you're able to, if you're putting your mind in the right place and you're following the right advice, get yourself into fish fairly frequently, or sorry, very soon after starting. Um, if you are young, I would definitely not hold back. Get out on the water as much as you can. And if you are old, well, um, that's okay. It's never too late to start. Jason Gerlinghouse, what's your favorite fly? Now, my favorite fly, I have what are called confidence flies, and those are the flies that I go to when in doubt. 
And the first one is a grayish black and white uh, stone with goose by it um, legs. And this is a double beaded stone flying nymph. And my favorite top water for trout, oh boy, um, probably would either have to be a, uh, an orange stimulator or I think probably more so uh, an orange or a green elk hair caddis, maybe even tan, olive drab, regardless, an elk hair caddis for the top water. And for bass, clouser minnow uh, or a shimmering minnow, take that back. You know what? Tie between clouser minnow and woolly bugger. And then for top water, I tie my own with um, uh, just like a normal popping uh, kind of frog type body, um, but I put a little mouse tail on it. And it, even better if I can spin that that same shape out of out of deer hair. Uh, I like the action and the light um, kind of chugging that you can get with deer hair bodies. So deer hair mouse slash frog. And our last question for this session is our third place winner, Will Walker. And Will Walker asks, when you're not catching fish, what's the first thing to change? Would you change position, fly, weight, depth, etc.? Will, phenomenal question. And this is a problem or a quandary, if you will, that fly anglers consistently, and I think any fisherman consistently battles with on a regular basis. Now, if you notice that you might have hooked a few fish on a fly, and now it's all of a sudden it's not doing as well, you might think to yourself that maybe it's time to change flies. Um, but think to yourself first, if you were fishing in one spot, say you were fishing a gravel shelf, uh, and you floated a hare's ear nymph, which is a phenomenal um, pattern that represents quite a bit and, and you know is a great imitation for quite a few different um, varieties of mayfly. If, for example, you notice that you move to a cut bank and now you're not finding the same production, think, maybe think to yourself, maybe it's not the fly so much as it is where your fly is located in the water column. Um, now, it might be true that there are no fish in that spot, but if you're consistent and you know that you fished there and you've caught trout before there, my suggestion would be to think maybe the water speed, the depth of that water or something is different than it had been maybe the day before, or it's just different because it's new to you. So as an example, here's an example for you. I fish regularly my own private little stream for browns, and there are two different corners that I really like to fish the banks. Now, one of them is a nice, slow, gradual pocket that creates um, down in one of the, and it goes underneath a, uh, a downed branch of a tree. And when I brought my young friend there, uh, my cousin, if you will, um, to fish it, he fished it, and I, I gave him the my, my rod and reel, and I put the nymph on uh, with the appropriate amount of weight, and he casted it up, and we hooked into one. And then he was very excited, and we moved on to the next spot after catching a few more there. Now, the next spot looks very similar. And without thinking, I just gave him the rod and the reel, and he maintained the same pattern and weight. And unfortunately, I forgot to mention that it was a much deeper and quicker um, 
little pocket and the same type of cut bank. And he was getting very frustrated and asked if we would just if we wanted to switch flies, um, or that he actually at one point said there were no fish there. Now, that's when it clicked to me that oh, I forgot to mention to him that we have to add a little bit more split shot and throw the fly a little farther ahead to allow more time to drop. And this is just one of those ideas that you know maybe it's not so much the fly because in my experience. And in the experience of many competitive anglers, um, if you look into, into my box, I have maybe four or five different nymphs maximum, varieties of nymphs, in slightly different sizes. And I usually find success just by finding where the fish are in the water column. Now, if, I'm just, if I have one hour to fish, this is great. But if you have an entire day... And you want to be very specific, especially on technical waters where if you have a really high-pressured water, you may need to switch flies to be more precise. But on my wild little stream where I'm one of the very few people that fish it, uh, I can get away with fishing a few nymphs in a variety of shades and just modifying where I cast and how much weight is on the, the end of my line. If you're fishing very technical waters, which I fished very tough dry fly, dry fly waters, um, you need to be a little more specific. You know, if you're fishing, for example, um, a wild brookie stream, a stimulator or an elk caracatus or an Adams pattern could probably get you through and catch a few fish. Whereas if you're fishing the uh, some of the more difficult, uh, you know, uh, tailwaters or some of the more difficult overly pressured or pressured water systems, you may need to vary the patterns in size, colors, shade, um, or even you need to mimic very specifically the type of hatch you're seeing. Now, that's not always the case, and in my opinion, especially on stocked waters, you can usually fish one fly all day and just vary the presentation, and that's, in my opinion, the most important thing. I know that was long-winded, and hopefully that answered your question. Thank you very much. Will is our third-place winner, and he knows what he won. It's right on the video. If you're interested, head on over to Twig in Timber Archery and Outdoors on YouTube, on Instagram, at Twig N, the letter N, Timber. Check out some of the content there. I have quite a few tutorials on some of the things I'm talking about on the podcast as well as contests and giveaways supported by my many wonderful and very supportive sponsors. Until next time, guys, catch you guys on the flip side, tight lines. I'm out, but let's head on over to my really good friend, Nate, with a wonderful and really informative interview. Take it away. Hello everyone. Today we have a good friend of mine, Ken O'Corn, with us to talk about something very important. I met Ken many years back at Cumberland Valley's Rivers Conservation and Fly Fishing Youth Camp. Since then, Ken has retired from guiding and now often donates his time to Trout Unlimited events and charities. Ken has been fly fishing and fly tying for over 50 years and studied under the great George Harvey at Penn State. He is one of the most knowledgeable fly fishermen I know and he's always willing to share. I want to welcome you, Ken, to the Fly Crate Podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. You know, Ken, I'm really excited about this podcast because it's all devoted to one of my favorite insect hatches, blue-winged olives. 
you will find VWOs in nearly every stream in the United States. In fact, you're almost guaranteed to run into a hatch while you're out on the water. There are so many different species of blue-winged owls, but we're actually only going to focus on two, the Junella and the Betis. Am I pronouncing that correct, Ken? Junella? No, uh, nobody alive today ever heard the uh, ancient <laughs> Greeks and Romans say these words in their languages, so I think everybody's guessing at how they're pronounced. Uh, I usually hear uh, the two families are uh, um, ephemeralidae and uh, beatidae. Uh, Beatus uh, are the little blue-winged olives, and uh, the ephemeralidae, uh, specifically uh, the Trinella genus, are the uh, larger blue-winged olives, which makes it a very confusing subject. The entomologists uh, say it's better to use the Latin names, but they're always changing them, so... <laughs> yeah, hard, to uh, keep, hard to keep up with. The uh, uh, Trinella olives are related to the uh, Hendrickson's and the Sulphurs. They're a uh, crawling nymph, and uh, the Abatis mayflies are a swimming nymph. So, yeah, it's, so uh, uh, there's no standard uh, terminology. It's been Various things have been suggested, like uh, the bigger ones are blue-winged olives. That's the uh, the ephemerella and uh, the trunellas. And then the uh, lower ones, the littler ones, are the uh, betis olives. So there really are so many things to talk about, but let's start on the trunella first. That group uh, generally ranges in size from... uh, 14 to 18. They have a uh, grayish or blue-gray wing, and generally uh, duns have an olive-colored body. And in terms of like the nymphs, these are the the crawlers. They yep. they look like they've been doing some upper body workout. They got like some biceps to their front, um, you know, their front legs there. Yep. They, they look but like they're almost armored in a way. Some of them do. Uh, they're actually. Uh, Less so than the uh, clingers, but uh, still, uh, like I said, they look like they, uh, they've been doing a workout. I, I usually use, uh, for the nymphs, something fairly basic. I tie hair's ear nymphs in various sizes and colors with and without beads, but uh, we use a bead head nymph because uh, I don't like to use shot. Uh, it has a tendency to tangle. It's one more thing on the leader to cause you a problem. So what I would normally do is, if I'm actually just nymph fishing, I, I'm fishing a bead head. If I'm fishing a dry dropper rig, the uh, nymph is usually unweighted or very lightly weighted with maybe a couple turns of, uh, of non-toxic uh, wire. Most of these nymphs will uh, move towards the edge of the current. Uh, the crawlers live in pretty fast currents, but uh, a lot of them move along the stream bottom to the edges of that, and they'll, they'll hatch in uh, somewhat quieter water. They also can you know, form a bubble and helps them to float up. And anything in the uh, sulfur family, which these are in that general category, uh, they have a habit of drifting a long ways before they finally emerge. So 
once these nymphs make it to the surface, they actually have to break through the surface tension. It's almost like a thin membrane. A lot of these mayflies will fail to break through it and complete their emergence. Do trout key in on these failed emergers? If, especially when there's uh, a lot of flies on the water. I, I think the uh, trout have a tendency to go for the easier targets. And one that is uh, partially emerged, crippled or having difficulty emerging, isn't going to fly off on them. A fully emerged fly it's, uh, could take off at any second. And if trout goes after it and it takes off, it's wasted energy. I think they would tend to go for that one first. I just use a, a shock of, I usually use a brown or olive brown, Zealon or Antron. They're very good, just a little bit of that. Many people say that you'll want to use a slow retrieve method to imitate the migration of the uh, Drunella nymphs. What do you prefer and what do you tend to do? What I find is... Uh, if I try to retrieve a nymph to imitate the uh, a migration of them towards the uh, shore, towards calm water, or whatever, I just get hung up all the time. So uh, I, I don't find it all that all that effective for me. I just uh, drift them through the zones where I think the fish will be feeding on them. So I know that you and many of your friends have this particular philosophy about nymphing. I believe you called it common sense nymphing. It's all about uh, fishing small nymphs. Why do you fish these tiny nymphs as opposed to larger size 14 or even size 16 nymphs? I'm a real proponent of fishing small nymphs. And uh, one good reason for it is they all start out small. So there's probably something small in the stream at any time. There's not necessarily something big. And usually, and, you know, and more often than not, it's something small. Uh, for example, you know, once you get into uh, summer, uh, most of the mayflies have hatched, and uh, you know the the big nymphs are mostly gone, except for you know there's a few, like the uh, slate drakes, the isonychia, which hatch. <clears throat> They're multi-brooded and they hatch again in the fall. But other than that, there are very few large uh, mayfly nymphs in the stream. Most of the caddis have hatched uh, the only most of the ones of any size would be the stoneflies many of which have a uh, more than one year cycle so they, they can have have those but overall uh, summer and into the early fall there are not a lot of large nymphs in the stream but there are a lot of small ones so <clears throat> all nymphs start out tiny much smaller you know just a speck really because you look at the size of the egg they hatch from. It's almost microscopic. So, you know, the, the ones that were, the ones that are hatching now, like the Hendricksons, and uh, they'll, uh, you know, they'll grow, and uh, they'll be at some point they'll be big enough to be of interest to the fish. So, you know, tiny uh, hares ears and pheasant tails. I, I tend to stick pretty much to generic nymphs. Uh, but you're fishing something like that in the small sizes over the summer and into the early fall. And you can tell, you know, when you start looking, turning over rocks, and when you see nymphs that are getting uh, bigger, you're starting to see 18s and 16s, then you can fish bigger ones. 
but I'll, I'll almost always have one tiny one on. There are a few uh, Euronymphers I've heard that use that same philosophy. Just from fishing with you and hearing their stories, I can attest that it truly does work. Uh, it's tough to decide between fishing nymphs, emergers, or even duns during a hatch. I always want to choose an emerger and a dun just for the addiction of seeing a rise to my fly. But if I walk down to a stream and see rising trout, are there any signs or clues that could help me determine what they are feeding on? If they're taking an emerger, a lot of times it will be a uh, like a porpoise-type uh, rise. And uh, if they're taking something actually on the surface, one, th- one clue is that uh, there will be an air bubble a lot of times because they, they take in air when they take the fly and then they, uh, that goes out through, their, through the gill op- openings, the gill slits. So if you, if you see a fish rise and then you see bubbles on the surface, chances are it took one off the top. If you don't see the bubbles, it's probably taking uh, just under the surface. You mentioned to me earlier this week that most rises occur in slower to moderate currents, although you found trout on the feed in faster riffles and seams. I'd like to add that when trout are feeding on nymphs high in the water column, you'll likely see a slight dimple or disturbance in the surface. Nothing usually breaks the surface, but uh, you'll see a few rings that will eventually dissipate. And uh, once the duns actually emerge, how do weather conditions actually affect the BWO hatch? Uh, the thing about uh, if you get a dreary, damp, or drizzly day and they're hatching, they'll be on the water longer, and your fishing is usually better. Why is that? Well, two reasons. One, I think that the trout have, you know, they, they would prefer not to feed in bright sunlight. So, And the other thing is the flies are not as quick to take off in uh, in that kind of weather. Is it uh is it does it just like take longer for their wings to dry like in the cold damp conditions? Yeah, that's the theory. Uh, oh, okay. So there I mean you can see this often uh with many different hatches like e- even at this time of the year where the Hendricksons are hatching and if you get a a cold damp day they'll float for as far as far as you can see, unless the fish gets them. But uh, if you get a day where it's warm and uh, dry, you'll see it. They'll be on top for a matter of seconds, and they're gone. Mayflies, uh, once they hatch into the uh, sub-adult stage, the dun stage, they can't eat or drink. In the middle of a very hot day, they're out flying around. Uh, they dehydrate. The smaller the fly. And the darker its color, the quicker they dehydrate. In fact, color of a lot of your flies is related to the time of the year or other conditions where they hatch. Uh, darker flies uh, absorb more heat. They need the, the early spring flies are usually dark. Uh, your light flies, for the most part, your warmer weather flies. Last year, we went fly fishing uh, on Penn's Creek, and we used a parachute for the emergers. I don't recall changing to a classic cat style dry fly, 
But uh, for the done stage, what kind of fly patterns do you prefer to use? Overall, I think uh, parachutes are more effective than the Catskills. And uh, the uh, Marinero Thorax style and a modification to it that I found in uh, matching Major Eastern hatches by Henry Ramsey uh, is also very effective. I've started tying those. Uh, I think... uh, both the parachute and the uh, um, marinara thorax style are more effective in most cases than the uh, Catskill style. Now, the Catskill style does float very nicely on on heavy riffles, and I'll use them there. I uh, When I tie a, a parachute, I'll either put a trailing shock or a tail on it. And then the Catskill fly, it doesn't really... Uh, float in a very natural position because if you've tied it right, it's floating on the tips of the tail and on the tips of the hackle. Um, the, uh, if you watch a mayfly on the water, uh, a normal healthy uh, mayfly done, for the most part, the body of the fly isn't touching. It's, uh, it's sitting on top of the surface film with on its feet. And the uh, abdomen actually curls up a little bit and the tails are in the air. You know, that's where the thorax done marinero style came in. It floated uh, more naturally. It looks strange compared to what we're used to seeing, but it uh, it kept the uh, body of the fly up off the water. In other words, the profile of your fly can be extremely important. Usually if trout feel like something is off, whether it's the texture, color, size, or even the silhouette, they can quickly refuse a fly faster than we can set the hook. All right, so we talked about nymphs and duns. Let's talk about spinners. What, or uh, actually, when exactly do Drunella spinner falls occur? The Drunella is a daytime hatch normally, and the spinner fall, unfortunately, is often a nighttime event, but that can change with weather and other conditions also. And I've had some real good uh, spinner falls in the afternoon. You mentioned that because of all the uh, the good warm weather we've been having, hatches might actually be earlier this year, right? Well, found that to be the case already. Uh, the uh, Hendricksons were ha- on our local streams here, ran into them mid-March. Uh, then we had a pretty good snowstorm, and uh, a lot of your hatches are dependent on on water temperature, and I think the fact that a lot of these creeks have uh, springs, major springs feeding into them, uh, it, it'll drop the temperature for a distance. So hatches normally progress uh, from downstream to upstream on a given creek because uh, the water's warmer downstream, but if you have one where cold tributaries are coming in, it sort of breaks it into segments, and you can have hatches occurring, you know, the same hatch several miles apart, or in fact many miles apart on the yellow bridges. It's 40 miles long. Yeah, that's incredible. I mean, that explains why you find so many hatches occurring in one section and not really in another. So really water temperature is a huge factor in the time of hatches. Many more scientific anglers than I, that I've talked to at least, carry a thermometer to gauge the timing of hatches. So now I really understand 
why they do so and they practice it so religiously before they even, you know, choose a fly for the day. Alright, so let's talk about Betis blue-winged olives. Betis nymphs are more slender swimmers than the Drunella. They don't migrate very far to the sides of the stream and they're more proficient and quicker at swimming than the Drunella and other, you know, crawling nymphs. Trout can actually chase Betis nymphs down as they rise to the surface and cause a more aggressive, splashy rise. But for the most part, you'll want to fish a Betis nymph much like a Junella. Dead drift it, and you're sure to hook up with a trout. So one thing that I really wanted to ask you, Ken, was uh, do Betis blue and olives hatch only in the spring and summer? Well, not necessarily. The time of the year has a lot to do with it. They are pretty much a... Uh, a late fall and early spring hatching insect where the uh, one we just talked about is uh, a late spring and summer hatcher so you're two different times of the year um, there are some exceptions uh, on some limestone spring creeks like big spring down here which I fish quite a bit you can get the uh, betas olives hatching any day of the year which is kind of strange. You don't see that too many other places. Uh, most of the streams I have my best fishing in October and November. But uh, if you have a hatch of duns, let's say in the uh, afternoon or late morning, it doesn't mean you're going to have a big spinner fall that night. But most streams that I uh, fish, I'll run into them from uh, maybe noon to 4 o'clock. Right. I find that to be true too here. Yeah. Noon to about 4 o'clock and then after that, it kind of tapers off. So, from my understanding, blue-winged olives can range in color. What colors do you find most prevalent in the dun stage? Most of the uh, duns are various shades of uh, olive, anywhere from a, a bright olive to a brownish olive. And they vary, I guess, from stream to stream and by species. But again, it goes back to what I had said earlier, instead of trying to match a, a specific fly from a, a picture or a pattern that's in a book, you're better off just tying them in a range of sizes, profiles, and colors and fishing those. Like if you're going to fish uh, uh, the uh, little blue-winged olive hatches, the betas olives, you might want to tie sizes 18 down to 22 or 24 tie some parachutes, tie some CDC cripples, and uh, tie them with... I usually tie my little olives like that with a thread body, with either olive brown or olive uh, thread, and I put a gold rib on it because they have a pretty prominent gold rib. That's very effective during a uh, betas olive hatch. Everyone says that betas olive hatches occur in the poorest weather conditions, do you find that to be true in your own personal experience? Everybody says they hatch under really bad conditions, and that's when I find the most of them on the water, and I find the most fish feeding on them. In fact, I sent you a video clip of uh, fishing in a blizzard in, on the South Holston River in Tennessee, and you saw the fish rising, and you saw us catching them, and we're fishing, you know, 22 little blue-winged olive duns. So... The question I, in my own mind, and maybe somebody can answer this and get back to you on it, do they hatch on nice days too, but they just fly away quicker? 
too quick to interest the fish and get them to come up for them. But do they really know what the weather's like outside the water? Uh, you know, you think about these things and you say, that, that water temperature is relatively stable, that nymph is down there, and, uh, you know, it's snowing or sleeting on the, out in the open air. Does it choose to come out at that time? What, what triggers it? <laughs> yeah, so if anyone listening has any input or opinions on, you know, what Ken was saying, please just feel free to contact me. I'll make sure to send it over to Ken and send us your input at contact at flycrateblog.com. Just send us an email or you can actually go over to our contact us page on theflycrate.com and send us a quick message. So Ken, one thing that I really wanted to ask you is about tippet size. Many people have a lot of opinions on tippet size and when you're fishing these tiny blue-winged olive flies, you know, like 18 to 24, are you using 6 or 7x size tippet? Or are you using something else? Like, what are your opinions on this? I don't think the tippet size matters a whole lot unless it's causing drag. I took George Harvey's uh, course at Penn State, and his uh, idea on tippet size was if you could get it through the eye of the hook, that's the size you wanted, the biggest size that you could use. I end up normally fishing uh, 5X or 6X in situations where you had fished 4X. I have uh, seven only if I'm going to fish something like size 26 or 28. And that's actually something that I want to talk about a little bit. When we were talking before, you mentioned that you don't like to put splayed tails on your tiny spinner flies, or tails for that matter at all. You actually don't like to have any tails. So why exactly do you not like to tie your spinner flies with tails on? On a smaller fly, the... Uh Tails, long tails actually can cause uh, the uh, fly to float unnaturally. You have these microcurrents that can catch the tail and spin the fly and do things like that, which uh, on a natural fly it doesn't do that because the tail has a, probably because the tail has a different consistency. But uh, any time I um, tie a small spinner, I'll leave the tails off. And that makes total sense. I mean, you're the first person that has actually brought that to my attention. I haven't heard that before. And I noticed that the tiny spinner flies that I do fish for like trichos or blue-winged olives, they don't really drift that naturally. So I'm going to start leaving the tails off. And I'll look for a few designs that I could, you know, put on the the fly shop here. But uh, I have another question for you. The betas are a bit different from other mayfly species in how some of the female spinners deposit their eggs. From what I hear, uh, some species don't lay their eggs from the surface. There's actually another method that they use, and it's a little bit unorthodox. Could you tell us what that is exactly? Some of the, the females of some of the beta species either swim or climb into the water to deposit their eggs on the bottom. Not all of them. So if you're fishing those, uh, probably a tiny wet fly you know, drifted would imitate that sunken spinner because once they lay their eggs, they, they're dead and they drift away. But if you see rising, actually see rising fish, then they're obviously not taking those uh, egg layers that are behaving more like a caddis than a mayfly in that 
you know, they're either diving in or crawling into the water to lay their eggs. On the on the blue winged olives, I think the I mean they're so small it's hard to tell, but I think the eggs are sort of contained within the abdomen instead of having an egg sac on them. But uh, when they sink, I don't think they have the same profile. In fact, even the ones on the floating on the water, you know, the, the way everybody ties them, including me, is the uh, two wings out to the sides and the splayed tail, and they sit flat on the water. But a couple of years ago, I was I was looking at them coming by. I, there were so many of them, you could you could hardly uh, catch a fish. I mean, it was just too many flies on the water. But only a tiny percentage of them were floating in that classic uh, position. Most of them were flopped over on their side. And I'm wondering, how do you really imitate something like that? I, ha- I never figured out a good way to do it, but I suspect that when they sink, you know, the, the wings are trailing back like a wet fly. Mm-hmm. So I think uh, the classic winged wet fly is probably as good a way as any to uh, imitate a uh, sunken spinner. During a spinner fall, are the trout going to be more selective on like the females over the males or vice versa? Like, Do they have a preference when males and females are falling on the water at the same time? I think that they, if there's a lot of flies on the water, they key in on the uh, uh, predominant ones. So if there's a if it is something that has a color difference, you know, they'll, they'll or, or a size difference, they'll key in on uh, the one that's most common. And actually, that's not that they're smart. It's kind of uh, automatic with them. They're programmed uh, to feed on the uh, most available food. And uh, you know, if you throw something out there that's different they probably don't even notice that they're locked into a few features of one thing that they're feeding on. Uh, okay, so it's more of like an instinct kind of thing. You know, Ken, we covered a good amount today, and I want to thank you again for coming out on the podcast. Whenever we talk, I always learn so much, and I have no doubt that you know some of our listeners walked away with a, you know, a good deal. But before we finish up, I want to know if there's anything else you'd like to mention. There's very little that's new in fly fishing, and most of what I talked about here is not. It's things that I found that work for me, and uh, a lot of it came from. I'm fortunate to have some friends who are some of the world's best fly fishermen, and I try to uh, pay attention to what they're saying. The fly patterns I talked about, the ways of tying them and the ways of fishing them are not things I came up with all by myself. I owe all that to a lot of people. And a lot of people will disagree with uh, what we talked about. and That's uh, expected because people develop their own systems. Also, you've got to have confidence in, in what you're fishing. And you can have two people fishing the same fly. One of them is uh, has confidence in it, and the other one doesn't. And the one who thinks he's going to catch fish is going to catch fish. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, words of wisdom right there. And I really want to thank you for you know volunteering and taking your time to come talk with me and coming out on the podcast. But I think this would be a good point to uh, you know call it a night. And uh, anything that we didn't cover today, we'll.
cover in the article that will be released in a few days. Okay, good. Well, uh, have a nice night, Ken, and uh, I'll see you at Penn's Creek. Okay, see you at Penn's Creek, if not sooner. (laughs) Well, that concludes our second podcast. For all those listening in tonight, I hope you found a few golden nuggets in our discussion that you can hold on to and hopefully use out in the water. I would love to hear what you found the most interesting, so please leave a comment below and let us know. And if there is anything that we didn't cover that you have some questions on, send me a quick email at contact at flycrateblog.com or you can go to our Contact Us page on the website and I'll be sure to have it answered. Also, don't forget to rate our podcast and subscribe. There will be plenty more to come. As Ken did mention earlier, hatches are happening sooner than expected this year. The worst thing is showing up to the stream and not having the right flies. So make sure to be prepared. Thanks for listening in. Until next time, guys.